Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's scripture comes from Ephesians 4. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it was said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take a moment of silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we come before you now in this moment of silence and reflection. We approach these scriptures from a variety of viewpoints and experiences. Some of us excited, optimistic, hopeful of what you might do or say in our lives this morning or this week. Others of us fearful or doubting, concerned or confused. We come before you this moment affluent, entertained, maybe lulling ourselves to sleep or fooling ourselves into thinking we don't need you after all because we're on cruise control. Others of us come to this moment not knowing how we're going to pay the bills or join the workforce or get through a difficult moment in a relationship or cope with an addiction. We come to this moment a beautiful mess. But help us to see that with all the ways we're different from one another, we actually have far more in common than we realize. On, on, on one hand, each of us is beautiful, created in your image and likeness. And at the same time, each of us is fractured. We easily wander. We come undone. We lose our way. 
And your response to all that beauty and brokenness of our lives and of this world is not to run away or just watch as the car careens off the cliff into oblivion. Your response is to move toward us, to give yourself to us in the sacrificial, self-giving love of Jesus Christ. And so we pray now that you would do perhaps the most difficult miracle of all, that you'd wake us up to your grace, convince us of your love, and send us out to be your very agents of renewal wherever we go. Teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed and this world would be renewed. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as children and teachers were preparing for new school years around the city, on Monday I was sitting with Joshua, our eight-year-old, who was getting ready for third grade. And as he's eating his French toast, he said, Dad, I think the butterflies in my stomach are making my food taste bad. And I said, son, I totally get it. I understand. I said, I think this is actually the hardest moment. It's half hour before you go to school. You're on the edge of the unknown. In my experience, once you get to school and you kind of meet some people, the butterflies will go down a bit. He goes, oh yeah, Dan, I've already thought the whole thing through. He's eight years old. I already thought the whole thing through. Okay, how does it work, Joshua? Well, when I get to school, the butterflies will go down a little bit. And then when I meet my teacher, the butterflies will go down even more. And then, if I make a friend that I can trust the butterflies will go away completely. I said, Joshua, that's pretty much the secret to life. I think you got it. Like, I'm waiting for the TED Talk. Wisdom coming from an eight-year-old. There are poignant moments that feel heavy and weighty where you kind of need a deeper truth to cut through all of the static. Or you need a deeper stability to cut through all the confusion or the nerves. And there was this moment when the experts, the teachers of the law, come to Jesus And these people were already well-versed. You know, they had gone to the Harvard of the religious world. They knew the scriptures. And so they're kind of trying to trap him. And they say, hey, what's the most important thing in life? And the way they put it was, what's the most important law that God has given us? And Jesus says, the most important law is this. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said the second part is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else hangs on these two truths, right? And so he comes and he gives us basically a vision for living in this world. And now the scripture that we just heard comes as part of the outflowing, blossoming of what it looks like for the church to live according to those principles in this world. This is an interesting piece today because it's a letter that comes from the early church planter, Paul, who spent a lot of time in Ephesus. Last week, you might remember, we were in Acts chapter 19, where there was a huge disruption in Ephesus because Demetrius, the silversmith, had worked everybody up and said, if these Christians keep talking about Jesus as God, then it's going to disrespect all of our pagan worshiping systems, including Artemis, the queen of the Ephesians. And by the way, we make a lot of money by selling the tchotchke stuff at the temple, so we'll be out of a job. So this huge uproar happened, but they couldn't shake Paul or any of the others loose. And, and the gospel began to take root in this region, and the whole region was transformed. Now, Ephesus was an incredible place. It was kind of like San Francisco or San Diego in that it had a great port city, And it was an incredible international city. It was important for trade and commerce as well as the development of ideas and thought and culture. 
And as the gospel, love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love one another as you love yourself. And this all comes to a head in Jesus working his truth, reality, and life through the community. The community began to blossom. But they also started to lose their way. They started to forget. We forget. That's why we come back here every Sunday to be reminded who you are. In fact, Paul begins the letter to the Ephesians. Get this. He says, to all the saints who are living in Ephesus. They're still alive. They've not died. There's been no vote taken. They haven't been canonized. He says, your real identity is you're a saint already. And he spends three chapters of it telling them, stop doing all these things. Stop doing all those things. Stop, you know, it's like, it's not you are saints because you've gotten it right your whole life and now you've earned this title of holiness. The title of saints is the birthright and identity of anybody who identifies with Jesus. In other words, he says, don't you realize you're far more valuable, honorable, and important than you realize, so act like it. That's really important because most of the way of this world and most of religion itself that has gone wrong will say, act like you've got it all together and then we'll call you a saint. But he says, no, God's grace always goes first. In Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, in his spirit that comes to you, when he looks at you, he says, you are my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. That's the truest thing about you. So remember that when you go out into this world. And then he casts a vision for what it looks like. Now, you know, we we cast our mission statement here at Renew several times a week so we don't forget. Following Christ to renew our neighborhood, our city, and our world. But I want you to see kind of the three pieces of how we do that. How do we do that? We're reunited to God. We're reconnected to each other in community. And then we're redirected outward in mission to serve the world. Those are not new ideas. In fact, they're right here, what Paul is calling us to and the early church to, to remember who is the, he talks about these gifts, right? Remember the giver of gifts. In other words, be reunited to God. Uh, Remember the purpose of these gifts, to be redirected out into this world and remember the community of the gifts, who you're being reconnected to. So we always say reunited to God, reconnected to each other, redirected out into the world. In this flow, we're going to do reunited to God, redirected into the world, reconnected with each other. But I want you to see how this all flows through the lifeblood of not only the early church, but how Christians of every time, place, and language have put this into practice all the way to today in Center City, San Diego in 2022. All right, you ready? Here we go. First, the giver of gifts. I always say if someone writes you a check or now, you know, they Venmo you something or whatever the case might be, it really matters not just the amount that they promise to give you. It matters that they have the amount in their bank account in the first place, right? I always, if, I, if I give you a check for $10 million, you have a piece of paper. That's all you have. If Elon Musk gives you a check for $10 million, you have $10 million because he has the money to back it up. So before we even look at the gifts, you have to say who's the one giving these gifts, Is this just another carnival barker promising really big things and then not delivering on them? In fact, yesterday, my son Levi got me into this YouTube channel called Scammer Payback. Has anybody ever seen Scammer Payback? It is awesome. So this is like, I mean, there's a part of you that just cheers because it's every spam text message that comes to your phone or phone call or email from some prince in Nigeria who just came into a ton of money and only needs a safe bank account to harbor it. You know, all of these scams, you you look at them and you go, 
you're not going to get me, but I'm mad about everybody that you do get, but I've got so much to do in my life, I don't have time to stick it to you. I wouldn't even know how. So we just go on with our lives kind of frustrated until this guy, Scammer Payback, and he's a brilliant hacker. He's like a world-class computer hacker, part of the secret societies and all that good stuff. And so when these people do it, he's like, okay, that sounds good. What bank account? How do I open it? And before you know it, he's in their computer. And he's opened up all their files, and he's reading them their mail, telling them their IP address, telling them what street they're on, all of it, and they're losing it. So you're just kind of watching going, yes, stick it to the man, get him, get him. I think there's part of us that just expects that people out there in this world are trying to take advantage of you, because there are. And then we cheer when they actually get their own medicine. I think that also gets put onto our image of God. Is God just someone out there? Or let's just say religion, or you expect the pastor to be the one who talks about the kingdom of God, grace, forgiveness, renewal, transformation, all of these big words. But underneath it all, really what it is, is you need to conform to this really small, old, naive idea of the way that the world works. Or is this really just another power structure using thought control to gain followers, to kind of amass whatever the case might be, influence in society, or money, or whatever? See, I think when we come to who is God, we come with all sorts of suspicion, and often rightfully so. Some of you come to church and you say, is this, is this going to be a place like the last place that hurt me or hurt my friend in one way or another? Because if your view of God is one that God makes empty promises, or worse, makes empty promises only to get something out of you and use you, you will run from that God, and you should. But the good news is, the giver of gifts that God... That that is portrayed in scripture and Paul is highlighting here. Listen to the description of this giver of gifts. One Lord, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. You go, yeah, 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 I expect to hear that. I mean, still, those are huge. At least just hold them with open hands. Above all and in all and through all. all. And what does God do with all of that power? Gives gifts to you. A king unlike any other. See, these people would know what a king does. Caesar was great at having power and authority and influence so that they could crush anybody who stood in their way. So that they could levy back-breaking taxes on the people to build the empire. And Paul says, no, 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 no. This is an entirely different kind of king. In fact, he goes on, and this is something the original audience, everybody would have noticed, but we miss it really easily. In, uh, let's see here, verse 8... Therefore it is said, so Paul's like, do you want to know how gracious this God is? Let's compare this God to the portrayal of every other king in the world, even the picture of kings in the Old Testament. Let's use our own scriptures to show how God is even bigger than you imagined before. So in verse 8 he says, therefore it said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. Therefore it said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself its captive, and he gave gifts to its people. But this is an interesting twist, because it's not what it says in Psalm 68. Listen to what it's, here's the original, this is like the original track, and then Paul gives the remix and says, try to figure out what I changed. This is a praise to God in Psalm 68, verse 18. You ascended the high mount, got that, leading captives in your train, and receiving gifts from your people. 
Hold on to that. And receiving gifts from your people. Because that was the way that the world worked. And here's what he's talking about in the Psalm 68. A conquering general from Rome, from Greece, from Persia, from Babylon, from any empire. This is just textbook. Goes off and conquers another nation. And takes the people into slavery. And takes all of their treasures. And all of their art. And all of their texts. And they load it up in a big train. With captives in the train as well. And they would have a parade that would go back. In Rome's case, it would be a parade that goes back to the Colosseum. And in the middle of the Colosseum would be a ticker tape parade festival, everybody cheering, waving banners, shouting the name of the general as the general leads the train with all the treasures, the captives, back in, and Caesar himself would be there to preside. And as that was happening, the store owners and the homeowners of all the little villages and towns along that road would come out and give gifts to the general. And part of it was honor. I honor you. Part of it was praise. I praise what you did. But a lot of it was self-protection. Please don't do to me what you did to them. We're, we're cool, right? We're good. We're good. Here's a gift. Here, have some sugar. Have some salt. These are all ways that they traded back then. Have whatever you want, but please don't do to me what you did to them. In other words, you have to appease an angry, powerful general. So they're saying in the old version of kingdom, that's what happens. But this is an entirely different king. A king who conquers sin and death and brokenness in this world and comes back in the victory train but doesn't have captives, releases them. That doesn't receive gifts but gives them. At the heart of God's character is generosity, grace, and goodness toward you. So let me just ask you, is your vision of God that good? Is your picture of God that big? Because that will drive the way that you relate to all sorts of other aspects of your life. The giver of gifts, being reunited to a gracious God. Now, the purpose of the gifts. Growing up into the head, into Christ. Being redirected outward in mission to this world. In other words, to become all that God intends for you to be. What does God intend for you to be? How do you figure that out? The gifts are the power of God to bring about the healing, the shalom, the flourishing of God because that does not occur naturally in our lives or in the wild. You ever ask the question, why are things in the mess that they are in this world? I'm sure you asked that question. I asked that. If you're not asking that question, you're not paying attention. Why are things such a mess in this world? Or if you look in the mirror and you're very honest with yourself, why are things a mess in your own life? Like things that you've been working on for a long time, you're still working on, and it feels like two steps forward and one step back. Why is growth and healing and unity, peace, why are they so elusive? And the picture that we get through Scripture is this picture of beautiful creation that's been alienated. Now, how do we define alienation? For this, I would say, what does a jogger who's running on the sun, a snowman in Florida, and a live fish on 30th Street have in common? They're all out of their element, and therefore they're all going to disintegrate. And so scripture gives us a picture that we were meant to be under the management of God. And we said no. 
I mean, the original lie was, you cannot trust God to look after you. You have to take matters into your own hands. And as soon as the first people believed that lie and acted on it, it began a ripple effect that continues to this day. I mean, consider spiritual alienation, where they're cut off from God. I mean, it was described before the Great Rebellion that humans walked with God in the cool of the garden and conversed with God, being known and knowing the one who created them. But now Adam and Eve are hiding from God. We want to be the masters of our own fate. And that's why perhaps the presence of the divine is so traumatic for us. I mean, if it really happens, if you really sense the presence of God. Because on one hand, you, can't live, you cannot live without God's love. On the other hand, you don't want to live with God's love because that means that you're no longer the controller of your own fate. And so we've been in tension ever since. As one therapist friend, Chuck DeGroat, says, and we've been hiding ever since. Now, that's just the spiritual aspect. You know, it's like uh, if, if you're laying a foundation, the cornerstone has to be completely square so that every other thing that's built off of it will be in line. Um, earlier this week, I was helping my friend Kenny hang drywall on his ceiling. Who hangs 12-foot sheets of drywall on a ceiling in this heat? Kenny. And so me, Kenny, hi, I love you. And he's like, the first one's the most important. Because if the first one is a little bit off, everything else is going to be off in orientation to it, and you have to redo the whole thing if you want it to come out right. And it's in a similar way. This, once that spiritual part is broken, everything else flows from it. I'll give you an example. It leads to psychological alienation. Now Adam is experiencing fear. Imagine a world without fear. That's what Adam and Eve had before they ran from God. Then Adam says, I was afraid. It doesn't last long until his fear leads to social alienation where he, you know, it describes Adam and Eve. And by the way, if you want to take Adam and Eve, and this is its own, own class, right? Don't get lost on, oh my gosh, the pastor's talking about Adam and Eve. You, for this one, Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman, the first people, it will all have the same end result here. Spiritual alienation leads to psychological alienation, afraid, shamed, hiding. Now, Adam is and Eve are becoming sociologically, relationally isolated from each other. You said they used to be naked and not ashamed to be known and to fully known somebody else. Now they're hiding. They used to have union as they walked together with God. Now there's blame shifting. God says, what happened? Adam says, it wasn't me, it was her. Blame shifting goes on. It's not too long until the first murder. And it goes on and on. The ecological world begins to become undone. Alienation. As C.S. Lewis describes it, you know, in, our internal problems begin to spill over into the external world. It's like if you're driving down the freeway, you're driving down the five, and you see a car in front of you, and there's a couple in the car, and they've gotten into a fist fight. And they're both, and you're seeing, on one hand, you can say the problem is contained in the car. But you know that car is about to crash and take a lot of other people with it. Because the internal problems will spill over into the external world. And so now, ever since, and I think it's only become accelerated in our lifetimes, and it doesn't matter whether, you know, young, old, somewhere, in the last hundred years, I think it's skyrocketing in terms of the amount of anxiety and exhaustion. That's not just by knowing you and this world around us, because this is my job. All the studies, all the research, all the everything. Alienation. 
So what are the purpose of the gifts? To reverse the decay of this world. To heal everything. I mean, isn't that amazing? A gracious God comes and loves you and gives you gifts for the good of this world. The question is, are you aware of what those gifts are? Are you making the most of the opportunities to use them? This is how the early Christians understood themselves. This is why we say we follow Christ to renew our neighborhood, our city, and our world. And what does that look like? It looks like feeding and eating with our homeless neighbors on the first Saturday. It looks like caring for women and children in shelters in Tijuana as they're vulnerable. It looks like encouraging the downcast and befriending victims and giving of our finances generously and sacrificially to pour out as part of the renewal of this world. It looks like you having an entirely new, new layer of how you go about loving and caring for the children in your classroom as a teacher or the boards that you serve on or the tech that you're making or the people that you serve through healthcare or the home that you keep or your place in the neighborhood. The gifts on one hand, it is a gift for you and you should enjoy your gifts. But they're gifts to be shared with this world. And it all takes place in the context of community. See, the assumption is all of this would be shared in community. This is why coming together as a church, I'm going to make a provocative statement. Come and tell me if you disagree. I'd love to hear it. Coming together as an actual church is unique and unparalleled in this world. It does something for you that a podcast and a Spotify playlist and reading a bunch of articles can't do for you. Coming to get, you were built to come together in actual community. This is why we always say, if you can't be here in person, come online. But if your choice is between coming online and coming in person, be in person. Because it does something to you and for you that then accelerates and expands your ability to give a good gift to this world. Quickly unpacking that. The community of gifts. Do you see how many words here are linked to unity as a community? Verses one through six are drenched in them. As we are one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Verse 13, we come together in the unity of the faith. When the gifts are being used, they're being used in the context of connected, diverse, authentic community. Here's the authentic part. But you, speaking the truth in love, grow up in all things into the headship of Christ. Speaking the truth in love. I love the actual Greek context in which this was written. Truthing in love. Truth was used as a verb. As you truth each other. Your best friend will truth you. The person who cares about you will truth you. Someone who just wants fans will never truth you. I would make the case, and you probably know this already, the people that have had the most profound impact on you and your life have spoken the truth in love to you. See, just truth with no love is harsh and cold and you'll push away. All love but no truth isn't love at all as you watch your friend walk into a trap and you saw it coming and you didn't say anything. But speaking the truth in love builds us up together. Now look, that only works in the context of real connection. That's what we're building here. That's why community groups are so important. That's why even if you can stand, stay for five minutes for coffee and donuts each week, do, joining in for Know Your Neighbor, 
these are all connections and ligaments that we're making together so we could speak truth to each other in love. And when we do that, the watching world goes, they have something to offer us. Because you know how the world operates, it speaks the truth in hatred. Or at least its version of the truth. Whether it's a political party or a political issue or whatever the case might be, speaks the truth in hatred. We speak the truth in love. Authentic community. An interdependent community. This is where we're both diverse and unified. It talks about the body, right? So we're not all the brain. We're not all mouths. Someone's like, Matt, you're all mouth. Why don't you just, you know, it's, it's hot here, we want to finish. We'll finish soon. Hold on. We're not all the right hand, all the left. You see how it goes. We need all, we need the liver. <laughs> we need the parts that are seen, the parts that are unseen, the parts that speak and the parts that serve. But we all come together in unity. And it's a missional community. Equipped for building up the body. That's why it exists. Why do we have a restless feeling that we are not complete, that we were built for making an impact on this world? Or what does activism, social justice, what does school boards and neighborhood organizations all have in common? They all say the same thing. The world is not the way it's supposed to be and we should be doing something about it. And Christianity, the church says, agreed. God has entered into the mess of this world and of our lives. In God's grace, God is renewing all things and giving us gifts, calling us together and sending us out to be the reversal of all the decay that we find. But don't try this without the gospel. Remember two things in closing. One, you are Christ's body. So take up the challenge to be Christ's presence in this world. I mean, this, is, this will make you both humble and courageous at the same time. Courageous because you're connected to Christ. Humble because you're connected because God did all the work. You have no stones to throw at anybody, but you can run toward the pain of this world. Take up that challenge. Imagine everyone in this church saying, I have a ministry that I'm called to today. I have a ministry that I'm called to this week. There are people in your life that you will meet that will listen to you that would never listen to me or anybody else in this room. There are places of influence that you have for good that are not accessible to anybody else. You have a unique calling. What is that? And it's the church's job, and it's my job as a pastor to equip you, to help you develop. If there's anything I can do, say the word. That's what I, that's what I wake up in the morning thinking about, and we do it together. So first, remember you are Christ's body. Second, remember Christ is your head. In other words, don't try this without the gospel. You are united to him. As my body is united to my head, you are united to Christ. You're invited to join him in his ministry, and what's true of Jesus is true of you. The welcome that Jesus receives from the Father is the same welcome that you receive. The love that flows through Jesus' life is the same love that flows through yours. The same future of the new heavens and the new earth. The same mission and vision and calling now. You are the body of Christ, gifted to serve. As we kick off this ministry year, let's remember and focus on being reunited to God, 
reconnected with each other and redirected outward in mission to serve this world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do pray that you would breathe your life into us now. Fill us with your spirit. Convince us of what it looks like to know you and make you known wherever we go. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon.